0: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the two spellings of ketchup and about how to punctuate questions. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the current ketchup shortage, and that reminded me that people sometimes wonder about the two spellings of the word ketchup. Although both spellings are correct, K-E-T-C-H-U-P, ketchup, is far and away the most common spelling. Some dictionaries do list catsup, C-A-T-S-U-P, as a variant, but the Oxford English Dictionary says that variant spelling is largely American and arose a bit later than ketchup, which came first. The AP Stylebook specifically recommends ketchup with a K, and a search of word usage in Google Books shows that spelling vastly outpacing catsup with a C in both American English and British English. And I'm sure it doesn't hurt that Heinz, the main provider of ketchup in both countries, also spells it ketchup with a K. The spelling on all those bottles and packets seeps into our minds like ketchup into a dry bun. (laughs) The history of the sauce in general surprised me, though, because it wasn't always a tomato sauce. The original ketchup was probably a Chinese fish sauce called something like Heishiop, that British travelers enjoyed while traveling in the East in the 1600s. After returning home, they tried to imitate the sauce and also gave it an English version of the name that came as close as they could approximate. And then, eventually, in the 1700s and 1800s, ketchup came to be a word for many different kinds of sauces. People made walnut ketchup, Oyster ketchup and mushroom ketchup, which you can actually still buy today from a British company called Geo Watkins that was established in 1830 during this time of ketchup sauce variety. The company says its ketchup was, quote, the secret of success for many Victorian cooks when making steak and kidney pies, puddings, roast meats, sauces, and soups, unquote. And if you look hard enough on the internet, you can also find banana ketchup and beet ketchup. The story actually reminds me of mangoes, which I talked about back in 2019, because mangoes seems to have been a term more generally used for fruits that were pickled before it came to refer to just one kind of fruit like it does today. For example, cookbooks from the late 1800s and early 1900s have recipes for pepper mangoes, melon mangoes, and peach mangoes, which are pickled versions of those fruits. But just like the meaning of mango became more limited, the meaning of ketchup has largely become limited, too. Today, tomato ketchup rules. If you just say ketchup, people know you mean the tomato flavor. According to Edom Online, it started around 1800 when tomato ketchup emerged in the United States, and by the early 1900s, it was the main kind of ketchup here. So the quick and dirty tip is that you should spell ketchup K-E-T-C-H-U-P— But if you feel like being an adventurous cook, you can pick up some mushroom ketchup and try to recreate some Victorian recipes.
0: Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently. At capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.
1: Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speech writer and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart. Every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart topping and Signal Award winning podcast produced by the podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jodi Pico and publisher's weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as The Washington Post and The Guardian said, missing pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Next, we'll talk about how to format questions. You think you already know this, don't you? I wonder if you're right. Almost everybody knows how to write a plain vanilla question like, What's new? They're called direct questions. But there are trickier scenarios. What happens when a sentence seems to be half-statement, half-question? What if you're asking an indirect question or asking a question that also seems to need an exclamation point or dealing with a quotation that contains a question and so on? I'll answer all these questions. Sometimes, even direct questions can be tricky, though, because they can look like statements, and the only way to tell your reader otherwise is to add a question mark. There's a big difference in meaning between, He went to the store and, He went to the store. Yet, the only difference between the two sentences is that one ends with a period and one ends with a question mark. The question mark makes it a direct question that shows surprise. What the heck was he doing at the store? And The Chicago Manual of Style also says you can use an exclamation point instead of a question mark in such instances of surprise. Now, what if you have a bunch of questions and you want to string them all together? I once saw a funny scene in a movie where a dog realizes he can talk, and it goes something like this, You can hear me? Can I have a cookie? Two cookies? Four cookies? Twenty cookies? Those add-on questions at the end, they aren't complete sentences, but they each get a question mark anyway. It reads, "Can I have a cookie?" question mark, two cookies, question mark, four cookies, question mark, and so on. They aren't complete sentences, and the rules about capitalization are vague. The AP style book says to capitalize the first letter of each of those add-on questions, but some books say to capitalize the first letter if the questions are nearly a sentence or have sentence-like status, so you have to use your own judgment. I would capitalize them. Now, what about those little questions that come at the end of a statement? You didn't forget my birthday, did you? It's fun to play maracas, isn't it? Bits like did you and isn't it are called tag questions, and they turn the whole sentence into a question, so use a question mark at the end. Do you have a curious nature? Do you wonder about things? When you wonder, your statements might sound like questions, but they're not direct questions. They're indirect questions, and they don't take a question mark. For example, I wonder why he went to the store. That's an indirect question, essentially a statement that you're wondering, so there's no question mark. I wonder if Squiggly would lend me his maracas. Again, not a question, so you don't use a question mark. Next, where do you put the question mark when you're using quotation marks? Well, it depends on the sentence. Is the whole thing a big question, or is only the part in quotation marks a question? If the whole sentence is a question, then you put the question mark outside the quotation mark. Here's an example. What do you think Squiggly meant when he said, the fish swam darkly up the river? The whole sentence is a question, so the question mark goes at the very end, outside the quotation mark. On the other hand, if only the quotation is a question, then the question mark goes inside the quotation mark. Here's an example. Squiggly ran up to Aardvark and asked, where is the chocolate? The question mark goes inside the quotation mark because the only part of the sentence that's a question is, where is the chocolate? It helps to remember that the question mark stays attached to the question, whether it's the whole sentence or just the quotation. Similar questions come up about question marks and parentheses. If the part inside the parentheses is a question, put the question mark inside. But if the parentheses just come at the end of a longer question, put the question mark outside. For example, if you write this sentence, we're going to Lori's beach house, open parenthesis, where is the beach house again, close parenthesis. So you've put the question, where is the beach house again, inside parentheses as part of one long sentence. So you put the question mark inside the closing parenthesis. Where is the beach house again? Close parenthesis, and then a period to end the whole sentence. But if you write this sentence, "When are we going to Laurie's beach house?" Open parenthesis, the one in Maine. Close parenthesis. Then the whole sentence is a question, and the part in parentheses, the one in Maine, is just an addition at the end. So the question mark goes at the very end of the sentence, outside that closing parenthesis. It gets really wild when you start mixing direct and indirect questions together. There are multiple ways to write something like, The question is, who threw the confetti? The simplest way to write that is to put a comma after the indirect question and a question mark after the direct question. The question is, comma, who threw the confetti? Believe it or not, though, some style guides recommend that you capitalize the first word in a direct question— even though it comes in the middle of a sentence. The question is, who threw the confetti with the word who capitalized in the middle of the sentence. Supposedly, capitalizing the first word in the question places more emphasis on the question, but I think it makes the sentence look disjointed. And if you think that looks weird, it gets even worse. If you flip the two parts around, you can put a question mark in the middle of your sentence. Who threw the confetti question mark was the question, period. It's good to know the rules, but these sentences seem so contorted that I think it's better to rewrite them. I could easily convert the sentence to an indirect question. Everyone wondered who threw the confetti. Or I could use a colon to make the punctuation less odd. One question remained, colon, who threw the confetti? Here's another strange rule. Some style guides say that polite requests phrased as questions get a period instead of a question mark. For instance, they recommend putting a period at the end of a sentence such as, Would you bring me the maracas? I have always found this odd since it's clearly a question, but the rationale is that it really is more of a demand masquerading as a question. You don't expect the person to say no. Rhetorical questions are similar. When you don't expect an answer or you're expressing surprise with statements that sound like questions, you can use a period or an exclamation point. How great is that? and who knows what they were thinking, are examples of the kind of questions that don't need a question mark if you aren't really asking something. Finally, when you're asking a question in Surprise, such as, What? The Chicago Manual of Style says you may use both a question mark and an exclamation point, but that it often isn't appropriate in formal writing. Instead, pick the terminal punctuation mark that's most appropriate and use that one. Ask yourself whether your statement is more of a question or more of an outburst. I've always found that solution unsatisfactory, which is why I'm happy to say they allow the dual punctuation marks if you really need them, and I believe this is new in recent editions. And I also love an obscure punctuation mark that was designed exclusively for asking questions in a surprised manner. It's called an interrobang, and it looks like an exclamation point superimposed on a question mark. Sadly, you also shouldn't use the interrobang in formal writing, but I love it when I see people use it in email or on social media, and most word-processing programs let you insert it as a special character. And on that fun note, I hope I answered most of your questions about how to punctuate questions. Finally, I have a familect story from Betsy.
2: Hi, Grandma Girl. This is Betsy from North Carolina, and I have a story about a word that only my family uses. So you know when you're a baby and your parents will say, oh, say goodbye and give a kiss, and you put your hand on your mouth and you will Um, Well, we are Italian, so we would say it more like Mwah. Um, And then eventually it started to sound like we were putting a G on the end, so like moing. And then we stopped doing the actual like and movement part. And it was just moing. And we would say moing, moing. um, And then we would start saying it a little bit faster and a little bit Uh, a few more times, and it started to sound like gamoing, (laughs) gamoing. So now that's our shorthand for when we're leaving and we're kissing. It's gamoing, gamoing. And that's just, I, uh, my cousin commented um, the other day, I have a big family, so we all do it. My cousin commented the other day, she was like, our kids are going to be so weirded out when they hear us say gamoing, gamoing, and none of their friends say that. (laughs) Um, So there you go. Gamoing, gamoing.
1: That's great. Thank you, Betsy. If you want to call with your family word story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. And be sure to tell me the story, because that's always the best part. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl, and on TikTok as The Real Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems, And that's all. Thanks for listening. Good morning, good morning.
0: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.